You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome back to our third lecture in this series on ethics in the 20th century. In the last lecture, I was exploring, as usual, uh, very quickly and no doubt too briefly, the uh, moral thought of G.E. Moore and by implication the other intuitionists who were influenced by him and in turn actually influenced him as well. We saw that for Moore, in reaction, I think, to some of the complexity and the difficulties of the crisis in moral philosophy at the end of the 19th century, we had a return to asking the most fundamental meta-ethical questions about the meaning of moral terms. And we get this very surprising result that the most fundamental term in ethics cannot be defined at all and simply names this special and unique simple and non-natural ethical property. We left more last lecture with a quote from John Maynard Keynes about the way Moore in his sort of closeted Bloomsbury drawing room would try to decide what's good while surrounded by his disciples, all sort of testing, closing their eyes, no doubt, and looking inside for a sense of where the good was to be found. This style of moral philosophy is prevalent in especially British universities in, uh, throughout the opening decades of the 20th century. It has some influence in the United States, but I must say I think in a, in a sense we lacked the kind of strong and simple moral convictions that many of these sort of leftover Victorians in England did to sort of feel at home with intuitionism. We, when we turned inside, we didn't get this clear sense that the good had to be going to an art museum on Sunday afternoon with, uh, uh, with your friends. Maybe we thought something more raucous would have been appropriate. The basic structure of intuitionism remains influential on moral philosophy throughout the 20th century, and I'll say some reasons about why that's true in a moment. But things change radically in the 19th 30s, and they change radically because of the intrusion into this debate, still largely a meta-ethical debate about the fundamental meaning and nature of moral judgments. They change radically because of the intrusion of a new kind of moral philosophy, and I must say a new kind of social force. These philosophers usually call emotivists, non-cognitivists, and I'll be talking about one of them especially in this lecture today, but let me talk about a couple of them. A.J. Ayer, the man I want to talk about most, was a very influential philosopher in, um, in England who wrote a book, Language, Truth, and Logic, one of the most significant and influential books in the 20th century. Uh, it was published in the mid-1930s. I read this book as a college uh, freshman, and like many people who read it, immediately lost my religious faith and faith in lots of other things, and it took some time to recover from its influence. It's a brilliantly written book which puts things in a certain order, and I'll say more about this in just a moment. Charles Stevenson, Ayer was British, 
Charles Stevenson was an American, a kind of meat and potatoes uh, Midwestern philosopher who went to England in the 1930s to work with Moore and Wittgenstein. And he developed in a more sophisticated, I must say much more boring way, these same kinds of ethical views. A famous article of his, The Emotive Meaning of Ethical Terms, uh, appeared in 1937. He returned to this country after that and spent some years writing a book called Ethics and Language, which appeared during the Second World War and was enormously influential for decades afterwards and still is in certain circles. Richard Hare is a quite different kind of moral philosopher, younger than both Stevenson and Eyre. Hare was a young man who uh, was captured by the Japanese in the Second World War, spent time in a prisoner of war camp, returned to Oxford after the war, determined to do fundamental work in moral philosophy that would help us think through the great political and moral issues of the 20th century and avoid the kinds of awful things that he had to go through in his Japanese prisoner of war camp. Hare comes to be the dominant moral philosopher in this Anglophone academic tradition I'm talking about from the mid-1950s through the mid-1970s, or maybe the early 1970s. And he writes three remarkable books that span this period. The Language of Morals, which he wrote as a very young man in 1952, which is, I think, certainly the most exciting and in many ways the best book Hare ever wrote. Freedom and Reason, he wrote roughly a decade later in 1963. And Moral Thinking, he wrote in 1981. He wrote lots of other things, of course, but these are the three most important books. The 1981 book has a kind of wistful air. By that time, the world has passed here by, and in the book, we find him kind of wondering what exactly happened. Hare, of whom we won't say nearly enough, carries on in a very sophisticated way this kind of non-cognitivist and emotivist tradition, although he presents himself as a critic of the crude versions of this theory. This particular approach to moral philosophy, as I say, is important in academic moral philosophy and is enormously influential in the social sciences and in our culture at large through the middle years of the decade. And I think still very influential, for reasons I'll talk about in a moment, in places where it probably shouldn't be. But enough about the names in the books. What are the views of the emotivists and non-cognitivists, and how do these views grow out of the early work by intuitionists like, like Moore? First, just a little bit more word about, uh, about A.J. Ayer. A.J. Ayer was a remarkable man. He only died a few years ago. He was a great cultural icon in England, was consulted on, for opinions on everything. He had a kind of outsider status which made him a particularly interesting. He was Jewish, which in British philosophy was unusual in the 1930s. In fact, Eyre for many years wasn't employed at Oxford University. He wrote philosophy from the University of London, which is sort of an, a slightly outsider perspective. He was in many important respects outside the British establishment. He has a two-volume autobiography, which is well worth reading, and you can find out exactly what sort of man he was. As a young man, Eyre spent time with something called the Vienna Circle as a young man in the early 30s, as a research student in philosophy, he went to Vienna, which then was home to a group of philosophers who were reviving a set of views in philosophy called logical positivism. Positivism was the view, the 19th century view, that as it were, the only knowledge we can have of anything is the positive knowledge of the natural sciences. It's the view that the natural sciences reveal all the truth we uh, 
we're capable of having. Willard Van Arman Quine, a great 20th century philosopher who himself is a kind of leftover positivist, used to express his view by saying physics is second to none. Only positivists thought not only scientific knowledge was the best knowledge, it was the only knowledge. Logical positivism was a 20th century variant of this view which suggested that we could support this view that the knowledge available in the natural sciences is the only knowledge that we can have by certain logical doctrines. In particular, we could show that the two great branches of knowledge, the natural sciences and mathematics, were rooted in the only two appropriate foundations for knowledge, natural sciences in empirical research, mathematics in logic. Hence, logical positivism is the view that only in mathematics and natural science do we have any genuine knowledge. There was a particularly brilliant group of philosophers in Vienna in the early uh, 1930s, mostly Germans, who were developing this view, and Ayer became their disciple. These philosophers were dispersed throughout the Western world. Many of them were Jewish, and with the rise of Nazism in the late 1930s, many of them came to the United States, some to England, and this is one of the ways in which this sort of positivistic take on knowledge was dispersed throughout the Anglophone world. Language, Truth, and Logic, when it appeared in 1935, it appeared as a kind of manifesto. In fact, it had sort of the, the appearance of the Communist Manifesto. I would invite all of you, it's a short book, I'd invite all of you to sort of take it somewhere for a weekend and try reading through it, and maybe you can feel the impact it had on me as a 17-year-old freshman when I read it. It's written in an exciting fashion. There's no qualifications for these huge claims. It had an enormous impact in British culture at the time, and Eyre became a cultural figure on the basis of this book, written to say when he was 26 years old. Now, what's the content of this book, and what does it have to do with ethics, and in particular, what does it have to do with more? Let me go back to more for just a moment, because I want to suggest that this next stage in moral philosophy actually grows out of two things. The needs of logical positivism to give some account of the ethical, and secondly, some obvious problems with intuitionism. And let me begin with the problems with intuitionism. And this is a background for the emergence of emotivism and non-cognitivism, and we can talk about what this view is. I suggest there are two main objections to intuitionism. The first one is what we might call the epistemological objection. Uh, epistemological in the sense that it has to do with how we can know what is good. And the epistemological objection is how can we really know what is good? We saw how Moore thought we could know through the method of isolation and through closing the door and closing his eyes and sort of just thinking about it. Is that earth, that planet moving away from us at the speed of light that's beautiful, is it good or not? Well, this was not a convincing kind of position to most people. In fact, probably not to many people who were more than a dozen or 15 feet away from Moore's clearly powerful charismatic effect on them. The first objection then was, Intuitionism seemed to give a totally inadequate account of how it is that we come to know moral judgments. If the constant sort of invocation on Moore's part of the parallel between goodness as a simple property and yellowness just exacerbates the problem. Yellow may be a simple property in the sense that we can't explain it to people, but with yellow we have things like 
color charge. When we teach our children how to use the word yellow, we can carry with us the little color chart that we get down at the paint store and we can point to the color and we have theories about light and the way light reflects and the way the optic nerve picks. So we can understand how it is that normal human beings come to recognize things as possessing certain colors, say the property of yellow. We have none of this with regard to the property of goodness. We don't have goodness charts. We can't take our children down to the ethics store and get them a sort of chart which has a sort of patch of goodness on it so when they're trying to decide whether to take up nasty habits, they can sort of hold the chart up next to the actions that would be involved and see whether they would be good or not. The whole apparatus for explaining how we come to know what's good in Moore's view seems shaky. Indeed, it seems to raise questions about whether we can know at all whether things are good, whether the language of knowledge here is even appropriate. The second objection, though, was even more pressing. Let's call it the action-guiding objection. And I put it this way. Why do moral judgments give us reasons and motives to act if intuitionists are right? Where do these reasons come from? Let me put it another way. Suppose Moore is right. Suppose that at the bottom of ethics, we have judgments about what's good and when I say, for example, that appreciating that beautiful art object in the National Gallery is good, what I mean is that experience has the simple non-natural property of goodness, where this logically is just like saying that a certain object is, is yellow. If that's what goodness means, why should I care about going to the art museum? If goodness is just a property of things, that can be intellectually sort of apprehended in these kind of special states, why should I pursue what's good? Suppose I say to you, it's very good to go down to the art museum and appreciate the beauty on display there. You might very well say, oh, that's very interesting, but I prefer to go somewhere else. But I say, it's good to go there. And you say, well, it's good. I don't prefer yellow things always. Why should I prefer good things? To be good is just to have this special property. On Moore's view, it's utterly unintelligible why anyone should care about goodness if goodness is just a property. Now you might say, well, goodness means by definition that which we care about. But of course, that's not open to Moore because his central thought is we can't define good. It's just a property that can be intellectually apprehended. So, Intuitionism, apart from other sort of problems you may have with it, seems to come up against these insuperable objections. We might put in short, how can I discover what ethics requires of me and why should I care about it? Why should goodness make any difference to me whatsoever? Now, these problems loomed large for intuitionism in the decades after Principia Ethica. Many people who thought there was something powerful about the open question argument, nevertheless thought, which is we might call the negative part of Moore's view, attacking the project of naturalistic definition, many people who agreed with that part of it found the positive part impossible to accept for these reasons. Now, so we, we have problems with intuitionism and these problems. The project of language, truth, and logic, which as I said before is the project of 20th century logical positivism, gives us another route into the emergence of emotivism and non-cognitivism. It's very complicated to get clear on 
the central doctrines of logical positivism. Let me try to do this quickly, what I call the project. Logical positivists in its 20th century uh, version were committed to the following views, that there are two kinds of judgments which can express things that we know, what they call analytic judgments and synthetic judgments. Analytic judgments are judgments like bachelors or unmarried males, which can be shown to be true by mere analysis of the meaning of the propositions. Logical positivists also thought all of mathematics could be shown to be true on the basis of this, that 2 plus 2 equals 4 can be shown to be true because if you understand the meaning of 4, the meaning of 2, the meaning of equals, and the meaning of the plus sign, then you will understand why that judgment is true. Synthetic judgments are judgments that involve a synthesis of concepts. The, the claim, for example, that I have five fingers on my hand is a synthetic. I could have had four. There's nothing in the concept of a hand that requires that. Associated with synthetic judgments is what was the most important doctrine of the logical positivist, what they came to call the verification principle, the principle that the meaning of synthetic claims is given by their method of verification. If I want to know whether what the meaning of a claim like there's a red bus outside this room, I have to know how to verify that. The way I verify it is take a color chart outside and hold it up against that vehicle. Analytic judgments don't need to be verified using empirical means. They're necessarily true. Now, these doctrines, which are the framework for logical positivism, all of our knowledge is either analytic, as in mathematics, or synthetic, as in the natural sciences, and synthetic knowledge can only be meaningful insofar as we know how to verify it. These commitments make ethics, and not only ethics, problematic. I know about the problematic status of ethical, religious, and aesthetic judgments. Ethical judgments are not analytic. Moore seems to have shown that with the open question argument. They're not synthetic because we don't have methods of verifying them. One of the reasons Ayers uh, the language, truth, and logic was so influential and important and shocking was he not only attacked ethics because it couldn't fit neatly into these principles, he also attacked religion and aesthetic judgments as well, suggesting that they weren't legitimate judgments in a certain sort of way. Now, in developing these views, Ayer found the open question argument very useful because it was a, he used it to show that ethical judgments couldn't be analytic because we didn't have the appropriate kinds of definitions. They couldn't be synthetic because we didn't have methods of verification. So what are we to say about the ethical? We know how to put the judgments in natural science. We know how to deal with mathematics. What about ethics? Not to mention religion claims about God, which also can't be analytic, and we don't have any method of verifying these statements about God, so most moderns have thought we don't buy the line expressed so well by Khrushchev when he was uh, the premier of Russia that once we got up in the skies and discovered God wasn't there, we had empirical evidence he didn't exist. We think religious talk is quite different from that. So logical positivism creates a problem for the ethical in general. The ethical implications of this view are quite stark. It involves the rejection of intuitionism because we don't have appropriate methods of verification. It emphasizes, and this becomes the keynote to this view, what might call the action guiding force of moral judgments. If moral judgments aren't reports of facts about the world, and they're not sort of parts of a kind of moral mathematics, what can they be? 
Ayer had the idea, which is picked up by Stevenson and others, that moral judgments are simply devices to sort of express in one way or another our attitudes and desires about the world. They have what he called a non-cognitive status. Moore had said in talking about defining the fundamental ethical terms, he had said either these terms name something simple, name something complex, or they name nothing at all. Ayer argues that Moore showed by the open question argument that they didn't name something complex, but Ayer says he made the mistake of supposing they named something simple. In fact, they name nothing at all. And Ayer introduces his famous suggestion that when we talk about ethics and we say that something is good, we're not attributing a property to that thing. We're not describing it. We're rather expressing our attitude. And he called this the boo-hurrah theory of moral judgment. In saying that some object is good, in saying to my friend that it would be good for him to go to that art museum, what we're saying is going to art museums, that's a good deal, hurrah. We're expressing a certain set of attitudes that are influential on others in bringing them to act in certain sorts of ways. Now, what follows from this about moral judgments? Ayer is brought to say that in an important sense, moral judgments are meaningless and if we mean by having meaning, having a kind of cognitive meaning. In fact, in some places he talks as if we can think of them as mere nonsense. What is the role of moral philosophy if all of this is true? If moral judgments don't express properties at all, but merely express our attitudes toward the world, well, the role of moral philosophy is simply to report this fact. Moral philosophy can't tell us what's true in ethics because, of course, the notion of truth has no bearing on ethics if moral judgments are simply expressive of attitudes. Now, this view, which comes to be called emotivism, gets developed in various ways and in ways that are much more complicated than air is able to develop it. The main tenets of the view are the following. The primary function of ethical language is twofold, first of all, to express the attitudes of the speaker, what we might call expressivism, and to evoke similar attitudes in others. When I say hurrah at a football game, I encourage other people to be excited too. Ethical language functions differently from scientific, mathematical, or other forms of descriptive language. Ethics is different from science and fact stating and describing language. In fact, we can distinguish two kinds of meaning. Ayer doesn't really develop this, but Stevenson and Hare later do. What Stevenson calls descriptive meaning, terms like red, box, car, describe the world, terms like good, beautiful, and terms we might use to talk about God, for example, only have emotive meaning. They're expressive of certain kinds of attitudes. And when we appear to argue, when I say to you, it would be good for you to spend time contemplating beautiful art objects because it will calm you down or something like that. It's not because. There's a sort of logical relationship between the reason I give and this judgment. It's rather that I tell you certain things that might make you come to have attitudes of approval toward the thing I am expressing approval of. 
So this is the picture. Logical positivism brings us to a point of view where we don't know where to put the ethical. We don't know where to place it. And Ayer says, let's place the ethical outside the cognitive altogether, outside the range of what we can know. Let's make it a matter simply of that where we're expressing our attitudes and emotions. And this takes care of some of the problems that we encounter with intuitionism. So what are the strengths of non-cognitivism? It explains why the open question argument works. Why can't we define good? We can't define good not because it names something simple, because it names nothing at all. It doesn't have descriptive meaning. It explains why we get excited about ethics, why we think it's important, because ethics is just about what we're for. It's about our basic attitudes and desires and our sense of approval. It explains why there's so many disagreements in ethics. If ethics isn't a matter of knowledge, coming to know what's good or coming to know what we ought to do, but rather ethics is just the interplay of people's desires and attitudes in a kind of causal nexus where we're all expressing ourselves and trying to influence other, other people, then of course there are going to be disagreements. There is no room in ethics for arguments that will establish one set of views as true or false, not because it's so difficult, but because we don't even know what it would be to think about a moral claim as being true or false. It also explains why these disagreements, as I say, are so difficult to resolve. Because, again, we have no way, we have no hook on the world as to resolve these. And it explains why ethical judgments guide action. If ethical judgments are merely the expression of desires and attitudes, well, we know that desires and attitudes guide action. So, of course, the ethical is something that will itself guide action. So we have the two objections to intuitionism, the epistemological objection, how do we know what's good? The non-cognitivists say there's no possibility of knowledge here at all. How do moral judgments guide action? They guide action the same way all desires and attitudes do. And we have the problem with the logical positivists, where can we place ethical judgments in the panoply of the claims human beings make? Are they instances of scientific claims or mathematical claims? And the answer is they're not claims at all. Emotivism is very useful in this regard. In the next lecture, I want to turn to sort of elaborate the cultural significance of this view and turn to the critics of this view which prepare the way for a quite different kind of revolution in moral philosophy in the 1970s. I will see you then. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.